This is episode number 287, Lifestyle Medicine and Cardiovascular Health with Dr. Brian Asbill. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. It's complex, but there's no question, all the data supports, that eating more of a plant-based diet is cardioprotective. The only two doctors who have looked at cardiovascular disease reversal, Esselstyn and Ornish, both used a whole food plant-based diet regimen. It works. And there are a lot of reasons that it works. And one of the reasons that it works is that the two things that increase your serum cholesterol levels, and there's some debate about this, and you'll, you'll see a lot of some nonsense really in, in social media. Our understanding is that dietary cholesterol and primarily saturated fat elevate your serum cholesterol levels, your blood cholesterol levels. Dietary cholesterol is only found in animal products. Plants don't make cholesterol, animals make cholesterol. The show is all about performance and well-being, folks, and that also applies to our heart health. Dr. Brian Asbill is board-certified in cardiovascular diseases and clinical lipidology, and he had a career-defining moment back in 2013. One of his patients, who had already survived two open-heart surgeries, was still experiencing chest pain and came in to see him after a recommendation for a third surgery by a different doctor. Dr. Brian Asbill had a book in his office by Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn called Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, which he decided to share with the patient. And Dr. Esselstyn has been on this podcast before, and I'll make sure that that is linked up if you want to check it out. This book, which recommended switching to a whole foods plant-based diet, changed the patient's life. Three months later and 27 pounds lighter, he no longer needed many of his medications and his chest pain was gone, and he didn't need to get that third surgery. This began Dr. Brian Asbill's path to lifestyle medicine, becoming the first board-certified physician in lifestyle medicine back in 2017. Brian co-founded Ruckus Health, dedicated to supporting people holistically in uncovering their innate ability to live in physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual balance. And that's what lifestyle medicine is. It's not just about eating a plant-based diet. It has several elements to it, which we cover in this podcast. Dr. Asbill is a fellow of the American College of Cardiology and is a professional member of the American College of Physicians and the North Carolina Medical Society. I'm really excited about this episode because Dr. Asbill definitely has a moderate approach, and he is a physician, one of the rare physicians who has a background and training now in lifestyle medicine and in how a whole foods plant-based diet can not only prevent but reverse diseases. This episode is going to be great for people who are curious about how they can maximize their heart health and what they can do in addition to or aside from taking medication and how your diet can help prevent things like heart disease. We first started talking about Dr. Aswell's career as a cardiologist and what that typically looks like. Then we talked about transitioning to a whole foods plant-based diet and how he actually transitioned to a whole foods plant-based diet just to try it out. Then we talked about some interesting things like detecting cardiovascular disease if you're asymptomatic, how to reverse cardiovascular disease, the protection that you get from it with plant-based diets, foods that are a no-go that you just shouldn't eat, and this one actually might surprise you, the six pillars of lifestyle medicine, and some general stress management tips. The book that inspired Dr. Asbill, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease by Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn is also one of the books that inspired me to change my diet back in 2013. I initially saw it featured in the film Forks Over Knives, and I thought that heart disease was something that I was just going to get and that it just ran in my family. And there are certainly predispositions to getting things like this, but once I learned that the diet and lifestyle choices that I could make could make a difference and that I didn't have to get those things as I got older and it wasn't just the luck of the draw, it changed my life and it changed the way that I approached nutrition and health. So that's a quick little tidbit about me and my journey into changing my diet back in 2013, and I've talked about that on this podcast in the past. If you enjoy everything performance and well-being, make sure that you are signed up for my weekly newsletter. It sends every single Monday. Last week was about how to cultivate more sympathetic joy for people and how to combat envy. This week was about how we can get obsessed with a number and how we sometimes will 
set a goal, but then lose sight of the goal because we get obsessed with the number. And an example would be the number of hours trained in a week. So if you like that kind of thing and you want to get notified of the podcast every week, make sure you go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter and sign up. If you're listening to this episode, chances are you are interested in health. And that's where Inside Tracker comes in. If you haven't heard of Inside Tracker, they're a company that does DNA and blood testing so that you can achieve your optimal health and performance. There's many labs that you can go to to get the blood draw done, or you could have someone come to your house and do it. That's what I do here in Canada. And Inside Tracker has a sophisticated algorithm to analyze over 40 biomarkers in your blood work. Not just things that you would see in a complete blood count that you would get from a physician's office, but things like creatine kinase, things like your hormones, things like vitamin D, and even C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation. Not only do you get these reference ranges that are customized for your health and fitness goals, but Inside Tracker uses research-backed lifestyle modifications that you can make to improve on those biomarkers. So whether it be a type of food that you can eat or a supplement or even things like sleeping more or maybe taking an additional rest day, they make recommendations to help you get back to those reference ranges so that you can feel your best. So if you're interested, go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia and you will get 25% off all of their tests. I recommend doing at least one. It's really great to have at least a baseline of what all of these biomarkers are. I have done many since 2017 when I first learned about this company and I have reference back, especially in pregnancy, whenever you have to get a lot of blood work done and they're always looking at things just to see where I was at last time or to see where I am at when I'm at my optimal. So you can go to insidetracker.com slash Sonia to check it out. All right, so let's get into today's episode with Dr. Brian Asbill. Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Appreciate you having me. I was really excited to get to chat with you because I'm really passionate about just lifestyle medicine in general and to get to talk to a lifestyle medicine doc and cardiologist is, is pretty cool. And I think a lot of the audience is going to like this conversation. Right. I hope so. So tell me, how did you find lifestyle medicine? Because a lot of people have never heard of this. Yeah, it's new, relatively new. It, it sort of found me, you know, I, I'm from Columbia, South Carolina, and ultimately decided to start my cardiology career in Asheville, North Carolina, in the mountains of Western North Carolina. It was either that or the beach. Those are Columbia was sort of halfway to the beach and halfway to the mountains, as far as I was concerned. So I was looking for opportunities in one of those places. And Asheville was just such a great opportunity, really academic level cardiology practice for, for private practice, community practice. And so I ended up here in 2001 and it was around 2010, I suppose, somewhere in that range that I, I saw a patient who had had two bypass surgeries and it had been recommended to him that he have a third surgery because he was having angina, exertional chest pain with minimal activity. It was really, really compromising his quality of life. And so he saw me as a second opinion because it had been recommended that he have this third surgery. And he said, what do you think? And I said, you know, I, I, I don't think this is one of those instances where the third time's the charm. You've used your bypasses. We can talk more about what that surgery is, but you've used up the bypasses. You've taken the vein or the arteries out of your forearm and out of your chest wall and the veins out of your legs. And you're not left with much that's yours to use. You'd have to use a cadaver graft, which is, you know, sort of never ideal. you you, you reject that. Like you might reject an organ transplant that's not yours. And so I said, it, as fate would have it, I had a book that had been given to me called Prevent Reverse Heart Disease by Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. A patient had given me the book and I, I was intrigued, but I'd really not shared it with the patient at that point. And I gave it to this man and said, your symptoms are stable. If things change for the worse, let me know. We can always do things more emergently, but if things are stable, let's see how this goes. This is very much a whole food plant-based approach to the idea of what we now call cardiovascular disease reversal. And so this is my N of one, you know, it's my first patient really that we had talked about this sort of treatment with. And I saw him three months later and he'd lost 27 pounds, which was a good thing. His cholesterol dropped precipitously about hundred points. And I took him off one of his medicines and, 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 and dramatically reduced the dose of the other. But what blew me away is he said, Brian, within a week of changing my diet from truly a standard American diet, SAD, SAD, to whole food plant-based diet with no additional oils, which is important. 
he said, I have not used a nitroglycerin for relief of chest pain in three months. Within a week of changing my diet, I've not used one. And he was using them literally every day prior to that. And it, it just struck me that what's going on here? You know, this is incredible. And how did I not know this? And so I got more interested in whole food plant-based nutrition, which then led to becoming involved in a program called CHIP, the Complete Health Improvement Program, where patients said, I've never felt this good. And why has my doctor never told me this before? Which then led to ultimately in 2017, that was the first board examination for lifestyle medicine, which was mm -hmm. holistic care. Instead of a pills and procedures track, it was whole food, plant-based nutrition, physical activity, stress management, sleep health, which is big, toxin avoidance, things like smoking cessation, and, and very important is social connection. So it's really only been around as a board certification for you know going on five years now. Yeah. I first heard of it from Brenda Davis and I'm sure you're familiar with her, but she's a good friend of mine. And she kept using this terminology like lifestyle medicine. And I'm teaching it in Lithuania at this lifestyle medicine program. And I started looking into it more and I thought, wow, this makes sense. But how long were you a cardiologist before you discovered this book and were willing to give it a try in your practice? Well, it's kind of a long haul. You know, I, I was, I got my medical doctor degree MD in 1994. And then you, then to be a cardiologist, you then have to do some training in something called internal medicine, which is sort of a little bit of a shallower dive into all the specialties, all the allergies, mm -hmm. you know, cardiology, gastroenterology, oncology, any other allergy. And uh, I decided that cardiology appealed to me because of the acute, the mix of acute care, heart attack, emergencies, more chronic care, uh, treating patients with for example, genetic cholesterol problems and that sort of thing, where you really get to know them and follow them for years. And some procedures as well, things like heart catheterizations, where we squirt the dye in the arteries and stents and pacemakers. And there, there's lots of opportunity to do that sort of work as well. So it seemed, um, and I like the focus and I like a little bit, I like the immediate gratification, to be honest, to, to be able to do something for someone and then have them feel tremendously better right away stenting a, a someone with a blocked artery in the middle of a heart attack, for example. So I did that starting in 2001 here. That was my first real job in Asheville. And as I said, it was, it was, it, it took about eight or 10 years of doing things over and over that you've been trained to do and feeling like you were mastering them, but then slowly becoming frustrated, recognizing that the people that you felt like you had optimally managed whose cholesterol and blood pressure and blood sugar was well-controlled and they were quote, on all the right stuff, they, they come back and they would have another event. They'd have an, more angina and another stent and then another, then they would have a bypass surgery and then a stent of the bypass. And you had to have been in the game a while to sort of see that enough to think, you know, what are we missing here? So yeah, that was sort of my epiphany. Well, everybody's different and everybody's level of openness is different, but I imagine for some physicians getting a book about nutrition to say, Hey, people just need to eat this way. And you might not need to, you know, do all these surgeries or give all this medication. Like, was that this thing where you thought there's no way this is true? Or for you, was this something where you were really open to it? Probably somewhere in the middle, you know, I was intrigued but a little bit dismissive, I think, which is sort of probably where most people fall. Most mm -hmm. of my partners would fall. Yes, interesting. But, you know, if it really worked, we'd be taught this. You know, mm -hmm. we'd know more about this already. It wouldn't seem so out there. So I, that's, that's kind of probably how I saw it at the time. And I think that's the way most people see it, honestly. So how did you go from being at that level of like semi-skepticism almost to saying, I'm willing to start using this in my practice with that first patient? That's a great question. You know, something, as we were having this conversation, I think I started this conversation that I described with the patient. I think that I probably first thought, here we go again. I wasn't really thinking about what else can we do. I thought, you know, I know this doesn't end well. I've had two patients at the time. He, he asked me, how many patients do you have? We've had a third bypass surgery. At the time, the answer was two. Now, you know, four or five. And, and that's not a lot over a 20-year career, of course. And 
And he asked me how they did. And I said, you know, they, neither one of them is still living. They had relief of their symptoms for, you know, about three or four years, but they blocked up those bypasses, just like they blocked up their previous bypasses and they ultimately succumbed to their cardiovascular disease. So as I was telling him that I thought, you know, what are we going to do about this? And then I remembered that a, a patient had given me the book and I had it in the office. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, you know, something led me to feel like, why not do this and see what happens? You know, because I know that this other path is really sort of a closed end. Mm-hmm. So what else can we do? And I, I saw no downside. It was, I kind of came at it maybe from a do no harm standpoint. I'm not, I'm not going to hurt you with this. Yeah. And, and what the heck, you know, let's just see what happens. So after that happened, I thought, oh my gosh, I've got to know more about this. The next thing I did, of course, was do an experiment on myself. Mm-hmm. And what if I do this for a month? What happens to me? I didn't feel like committing to it for more than about a month because I figured, you know, I can do anything for a month, most anything. And my cholesterol, my experience, because I was also a lipidologist, I was, I was board certified in the management of cholesterol. And so I had access to some you know, cool lipid tests. So I got my cholesterol checked. I did completely whole food plant-based, you know, no added salt, oil, sugar for a month. And I had my cholesterol retested at the end of 30 days and my cholesterol dropped by 45%. My LDL, my bad cholesterol went from 130, which is about the 50th percentile in the United States to uh, the fifth percentile, which was 70. And I thought, wow, you know, there's something really significant happening here and I've got to find out more about it. And at that point, I was, you know, all in and, and just really interested and on fire to learn more about this treatment paradigm that, you know, I'm embarrassed, almost embarrassed to say I, I, I knew very little about it uh, when I first had that conversation with that patient. Yeah. And another thing that I'm very surprised and impressed by is it's very difficult to do a complete 180 with your diet especially it sounds like this, this one patient, like their diet was nowhere near this. So to be able to very rapidly shift to something that probably felt very extreme for that person, which most people, most people have trouble even just giving up cheese and this person like completely changed their life. Like, what do you think that compliance journey was for that patient? And also what was it like for you? Yeah, a couple of things for him. You know, I think that, I think it depends on where you're starting from. You know, he was desperate. His quality of life was just really dismal. He was tearful in the office. So he was very motivated to make big changes. So he was willing to try anything, frankly, anything's better than this. And the other point I would make for him was that, and Dean Orner says this all the time, it's the stick maybe that gets you motivated, but it's the carrot that keeps you going. And that was certainly the experience with this man who within a week, he went from not using any nitroglycerin he hadn't lost a lot of weight in a week, you know, and his, he didn't have any idea what his cholesterol looked like. Mm-hmm. What motivated him was within a week, I'm not having chest pain when I go walk the dog mm-hmm. or go do whatever it is. And now I'm, I'm sort of thinking maybe I could walk on a treadmill. So he's walking on a treadmill 30 minutes a day at whatever incline and whatever speed, which was just unthinkable. So for him, it definitely was a situation that the carrot was what kept him going. And for me, I, I really... Again, I, I said, you know, what the heck? I, I'm going to do it for a month and see what happens. I have nothing to lose. I can do anything for a month. So I, I lost six pounds, which is a good thing. Six or seven pounds. I wasn't tremendously overweight, but most of us probably have that much weight that we could lose. Most most people in this country, slightly overweight. And then when I saw the cholesterol, I, you know, I was hooked. Yeah. And the thing that I think is also interesting about cardiovascular disease is most people listening to this podcast probably don't have severe cardiovascular disease. They probably haven't had a heart attack. They probably aren't going for surgeries. Maybe they have, you know, high blood pressure that's run in their family, or maybe somebody died of a stroke when they're 80. And that person is probably thinking like, well, this is just genetic, or this just happens to everybody because cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of people in the United States. I think that's still a true fact. Is it? it Okay. So like, I don't have anything this extreme. So why do I need to adopt or even think about adopting something like this? So can you talk about like the more insidious asymptomatic versions of cardiovascular disease and why it seems to creep up as we get older? 
Yeah, that's that's another great question. This is a long and involved question. We might want to break this one down, but <laughs> I think a lot of these patients, you know, the, the problem with cardiovascular disease is that the most common presenting symptom of symptomatic cardiovascular disease is a heart attack and sudden death. So what happens is that the plaque, the cholesterol buildup in your heart artery cracks open and it, it may be completely asymptomatic. Maybe it's only blocking off 30% or so of the, of the lumen, the tube of the artery, if you will. It's only blocking off 30% of that. It takes about 70% or more of that, that lumen, that area where the blood's flowing through the artery. You have to have it be about 70% blocked for it to cause exertional chest pain. You don't, otherwise you don't know it's there. And so you have less than that blockage. Again, say a 30 or 40% blockage cracks open, a blood clot forms on that. And then that blood clot forming on top of this ruptured plaque where the cholesterol is now exposed to the circulating blood, that blood clot formation on top of that wound, if you will, has now completely obstructed that artery. And so the heart muscle downstream from that artery is no longer, is acutely not getting normal blood flow. In fact, in this case, no blood flow, and it will go into an electrical seizure. And when that happens, the heart's no longer pumping, it's just quivering. It's called ventricular fibrillation. And that's, that's not a, you're not generating any cardiac output and, and down you go. And, you know, if that happens in the, we've all seen that happen to people The I remember a referee collapsing during a, a football game one time and, you know, he's face planted or soccer, it happened. In, and if you're a major league soccer fan, uh, it happened in international soccer and people rush out there with the defibrillator and shock the person back into rhythm. But a, a number of people still die from their presenting event is death. And so that's, that's a very unique situation in medicine when the initial symptom presenting symptom is, is death. It's like a stroke. Mm -hmm. That's, that's another manifestation of cardiovascular disease. The blockage is now being in your neck artery instead of your heart artery. So it's the same systemic process. Your arteries are getting blocked with cholesterol. So that's a biggie. I see a lot of patients who come to see me actually, or see me now virtually to talk about what risk they might be at and not know it. Uh, mm -hmm. And that, that, like you said, it's a, it's usually a family history of an event or best friend who is the same age who might have died from the event that I just described. And that's really interesting. I think that that's, I'd far rather have that conversation than have the conversation with my patient, you know, who had had the two bypass surgeries. And a lot of these patients, as I said earlier, that patient was very motivated, my bypass surgery patient, but a lot of these patients for, who are interested in what we call primary prevention, preventing the first event, they're also very motivated. So how do you identify asymptomatic or what we call subclinical coronary disease in someone? I'm not having symptoms and I don't know if I have a problem. Am I sitting on a problem here or not? First of all, I think you need a doctor to do some blood work. I think you need to know a lot, a lot of patients have, you know, I'm a runner. I don't haven't seen a doctor. A friend of mine who's a runner in town had sudden death in the neighborhood about three months ago. Happened that a woman saw him running and collapsed on the pavement and he's completely unscathed, which is just so awesome. But one way that you can do this is first get the blood work, get your blood pressure checked, get your cholesterol checked. A lot of people have cholesterol problems and don't know it. Get your blood sugar checked, make sure you're not pre-diabetic or maybe even diabetic. And I do a lot of coronary artery calcium screening tests on patients. To the coronary calcium is, is basically a, a 15 second CAT scan of your heart arteries, looking for calcium buildup in your heart arteries. If you have cholesterol, the cholesterol will become calcified. So we're looking for calcium. It's very reproducible. The computer just spits out a number. And the calcium is a marker of cholesterol, which is a marker of risk. Therefore, the uh, calcium is a marker of risk. And so we can plug all that stuff into a calculator. There are a couple of calculators out there. One of them is the MESA, M-E-S-A, Multi-Ethnic Study of Atherosclerosis Calculator. And the other one is the ASCVD, Atherosclerotic Cardiovascular Disease, ASCVD Calculator. They both look at 10-year risk of an event. And the MESA calculator you plug in all the family history, smoking, on, do you have high blood pressure? What are your cholesterol numbers? The MESA calculator allows you to add the calcium score to refine that risk estimate. And then it will spit out your risk of an event in the next 10 years is say 8%. 
And there are some thresholds at which point we would consider it to be more than just minimal risk. And then we might have this conversation, you know, that the calculators recommend, of course, that we have a conversation about whether or not you would benefit from statin therapy, being on cholesterol lowering medication. But I, I would, I think that the opportunity is there to have that conversation, of course, but also to talk about, hey, you know, what are you eating? And let's talk about the data around how impactful that is. And then you, the patient, you decide what you want to do. But I feel like I'm obligated to share with you that data so that you can make the, you know, the best informed decision that you can for yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that something a lot of people don't realize is that if they have high cholesterol or they have blood pressure that's creeping up, um, that that is cardiovascular disease. They're just like, oh, I just have high blood pressure. Oh, I just have high cholesterol. But really that is cardiovascular disease. And people think, well, it's only cardiovascular disease if I'm having like a heart attack and have to get surgery. So the, mo the common risk factors for heart disease, and this was identified way back in the Framingham uh, study in Framingham, Massachusetts, five, six decades ago, smoking, obesity, diabetes, cholesterol, blood pressure, family history, those are all markers of future problems for sure. And not just heart disease, right? I and mean, those are markers for certain cancers, for Alzheimer's dementia, for just really all sorts of problems. You, you need to pay attention to that stuff. And you, you don't know you have it unless you check. And like, I, I'm picking on the blood pressure piece because a friend of mine, um, he's also a professional mountain biker. And after I changed my diet, he became intrigued with what I was doing. And he was a professional athlete in his early thirties and he had high blood pressure. Um, mm -hmm. So a lot of times people think, well, I'm an athlete, so I, I can just exercise away the bad or I exercise. So that's good enough. Mm -hmm. Um, what is a blood pressure that should be the starting point of being concerned? Yeah. Good question too. That, that changes the current guidelines say that normal blood pressure is less than 120 over 80. And that sort of pre hypertension would be in the one greater than 130 over 80. And then stage one hypertension greater than 140 over 90 and stage two hypertension, you know, really problem uh, greater than 160 over hundred. So less than 120 over 80 really is now considered a normal blood pressure. And over time, you know, this is again, what I've noticed and what I've read, but over time, like people's blood pressure starts creeping up. So maybe when they were 30, they did have normal blood pressure. So they said, well, I'm not going to change my diet. I'm not going to do anything. But then when they're 40 or 50, maybe they are in this prehypertension or stage one hypertension phase. Why does that go up over time? Because people just think, oh, that's just aging. Yeah, we see that a lot. It really has in part to do with the, the loss of elasticity of your vessels over time. Your, your blood vessels become more sclerotic, more scarred, more, and sadly, in a lot of cases, full of cholesterol, and they become less distensible. It's like, um, you know, if you think about filling up a water balloon, a thin-walled water balloon, and it just doesn't take much pressure at all to fill up that balloon, and that's a, that's a, that's a normal situation. But if you have a thicker balloon, it takes a lot more pressure to, to fill up that balloon, and that, that's the, it's the same principle with blood pressure. As your, as your arteries become less elastic, with age, the blood pressure can go up and you can become more sensitive to small volume changes within this more rigid structure. And those small volume changes, it has a lot to do with the amount of sodium that we eat in our diet, sodium primarily being found in salt. Sodium is salt, is salt rather is sodium chloride. There are other salts. Potassium chloride is fake salt, which you can see in the grocery store. There's half salts that are half potassium and half sodium chloride. It's the sodium that's the problem because the water travels with the sodium. We eat too much salt in our diet, usually added salt from packaged or restaurant foods 75% of the time. And the water travels with the sodiums. So now you got a lot more water in the less distensible artery and you, now you have a problem. Yeah. And it seems like a lot of times people go see their cardiologist and the cardiologist is like, well, like decrease your sodium, but that's not going to change the plaques. It's not going to reverse the heart disease that's there. That's just the existing flow of blood and the water available. So how can people reverse heart disease? Because a lot of doctors don't think that you can actually do this. They just think keep taking more and more drugs. Right. Yeah. You know, that's a, another good question. There were two doctors who looked at this problem. You know, what can we do to is there any possibility of reversing cardiovascular disease? And there are two names that, that really jump out. And one is Esselstyn, whom I mentioned who wrote the book. He did his research on a couple of hundred patients in Ohio 
who were felt to be too far gone to help. I mean, there's really no, I can't bypass you. I can't stent you because there's no discrete blockage. If you have a discrete blockage, picture a long tube with a blockage in the middle, I can stent that blockage open. Now you've got normal blood flow or I can bypass that blockage. I can literally divert the blood flow around the blockage and then downstream from the blockage, everything looks okay. The problem with some of Ornish or uh, Esselstyn's patients where they had very diffuse blockage, there was no, there's no normal blood flow. And so you can't fix it if it's not a discrete problem. And they, they basically said, we have really nothing to, to offer. And so he took those patients in and offered them a whole food plant-based diet with no added salt, oil, sugar. And first, I would say that the compliance was surprisingly high. I think that even if doctors believe this might work, I think a lot of them just don't believe that my patients aren't going to do this. Well, I will tell you, I thought I'm a pretty good judge of character. And I was shocked at how often I was wrong in judging whether or not a patient was going to be receptive to this information or not. Shocked at how often I didn't get this right. Mm-hmm. And Ornish or Esselstyn saw about a 90%, about 89% of, of his patients were compliant over about three and a half years with eating this way. Of course, again, they were very motivated because there was nothing else to offer them. So there was a selection bias there. And what he found was that the event rate, the risk of a heart attack or fatal heart attack or death in the compliant group was about 2% over three and a half years. In the non-compliant group, again, that only about 10% of those patients were non-compliant, the event rate was 62%, night and day. And he also did stress tests and angiograms where we squirt the dye in and look at the heart arteries and saw reversal. He actually literally saw less cholesterol on the heart catheterization. He saw reestablishment of normal blood flow or improved blood flow on stress test. Things changed. Ornish, Dean Ornish was doing sort of the similar work in California. He randomized patients. He did a heart catheterization on patients and randomized them to two groups. One group got optimal medical therapy, aspirin, antianginals, statins, and 60% of those patients. This is around 1990. So today that there would be statins in you know, 98% of patients. We're actually bonused on whether or not you're on a statin when you leave the hospital after your event. I mean, you get paid more. Yes. And the other group was assigned to his lifestyle medical treatment, which was four things equally weighted, whole food, plant-based nutrition, physical activity, stress management, which was mostly hatha yoga and meditation, and something called group support, where they would sit around in group and talk about a lot of very personal, emotional things around this diagnosis, which, as you can imagine, often sort of brought up very quickly, some issues from the past, which were in a lot of cases, they had never talked to anybody about these things before. And it was really great and very healing, I would say, to get that off off the chest. And what Ornish saw was that over one year, they everybody had another heart catheterization a year later, and there was some progression in the medical therapy group and some regression, less cholesterol buildup in the, in the Ornish group. But it was a small separation and people sort of poo-pooed the idea of this idea of cardiovascular disease reversal. So he said, I'll take it out to five years and let's see what happens at five years. Again, about 90% of people were compliant in eating this way or in living this way. In the medical therapy group, there was about a 28% progression. There was 28% more cholesterol buildup in the arteries compared to you know, five years ago. And in the, med- in the Ornish group, there was an 8% regression. So that's where we started talking about cardiovascular disease reversal, literally less cholesterol buildup in your heart arteries. And some people said, well, who cares about 8% less cholesterol over five years? It doesn't seem like a big return. Well, it is a big return when you compare it to 28% progression on the meds. And I would sometimes surprise my Ornish patients in saying, you know, honestly, as a clinical cardiologist, I don't much care whether or not you have a 30 or 40% blockage in your heart artery. What I care about is that you don't have symptoms that ruin your quality of life, like my patient that I described with the angina, and that you don't lose your life to this disease. So when you look at that difference in the Ornish population, there was a 90% reduction or resolution of angina in the Ornish patients on no meds. There was a 160% increase in angina 
in the patients who were treated with optimal medical therapy, including antianginals. That's an incredible difference. If you were in the Ornish group, you were two and a half times less likely to have a heart attack, fatal or non-fatal heart attack, bypass surgery, or, or cardiovascular, sudden cardiovascular death. That's a big difference. So frankly, it just worked better. And as a lipidologist, I was also interested to see that there was an equal reduction in both of those groups in their cholesterol reduction. Both cholesterols reduced by about 20%, but the Ornish group on no meds, their, their clinical outcomes were just superior. Yeah. So it sounds like if you're not willing to change your lifestyle, you're just going to keep taking more and more medication to try and put a bandaid on something that's getting worse and worse in your body. How, like you said that they were equally weighted in the Ornish group, the, it was the social connection piece. You said plant-based diet, a meditation, Hatha yoga movement practice. And what, what was the fourth? That's it. So meditation, yeah. yoga together, stress management. Yep. And so nutrition, physical activity, stress management, group support, Mm -hmm. Interestingly, you know, as a cardiologist and as sort of a budding lifestyle medicine physician, I felt like I knew some of the data at this point, you know, around the nutrition and the physical activity part. I knew that that worked. I actually knew some of the studies and felt like I was getting my hand around that. I was interested in learning more about the stress management part, which at that time was not part of my daily routine. It is now. Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't really interested at all in the social connection piece. It was also that part was the part that I, as the medical director, was not invited to. I could participate in the nutrition piece. I could eat lunch with them and listen to the lecture. I could go talk to them while they were exercising. I could do yoga and meditation with them. I could not come to group support because what happened, what was said in the group sort of stayed in the group. And so for some reasons, for those reasons, I like to say that that was the reason that I wasn't interested in it because I couldn't go to it. But the truth was, I just really wasn't, I didn't believe in the science of that. I uh, had not thought much about the science of that. And it was impressed upon me and basically doing exit interviews on patients who had gone through the Ornish program. I would say that at least 90% said that the, the most important piece of all the four pieces, and they were trained that these four pieces are, you know, integrative. You cannot separate one from the other. This is a package deal. They all said the group support piece was the most impactful portion of this program. And it was the glue that, allowed me, it, it held the other pieces together. It allowed me to do these other pieces because I knew that I had support from these 12 people that have gone through this program with me. And that was another sort of wake up call for me. I, I wasn't looking for that. It, it, it found me. Yeah. And something else I think is interesting is like someone listening might say, well, I'm willing to do three of the four. I'm not doing that plant-based thing. Like I'll do the other things, but the buildup of the plaque in the arteries is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is from eating animal products. It's from a combination of things, but you know, it's related to all these things, diabetes, blood sugars being high, smoking, genetics, about up mm -hmm. to a 20 to 35% genetic, that's, you know, lifestyle related, maybe even up to 80% lifestyle related. It's complex, but there's no question. All the data supports that eating more of a plant-based diet is cardioprotective. The only two doctors who have looked at cardiovascular disease reversal, Esselstyn and Ornish, both used a whole food plant-based diet regimen. It works. And there are a lot of reasons that it works. And one of the reasons that it works is that the two things that increase your serum cholesterol levels, and there's some debate about this, and you'll, you'll see a lot of some nonsense really in, in social media, our understanding is that dietary cholesterol and primarily saturated fat elevate your serum cholesterol levels, your blood cholesterol levels. Dietary cholesterol is only found in animal products. Plants don't make cholesterol, animals make cholesterol. So if you give up animals, completely animal products, you're not eating any dietary cholesterol. The majority of saturated fats in our diets come from animal products. The two plant exceptions I would say are palm oil and coconut oil. Palm oil being mostly in processed foods that you know you shouldn't be eating, little Debbies and Twinkies and things. And coconut oil, a lot, some, every now and then I'll counter somebody who said, oh, I thought coconut oil was good for me. No, it's not. Certainly not from a cardiovascular standpoint. It's about 70% saturated fat, and it will definitely elevate your serum cholesterol levels. So, And then you combine that with the fiber in the plants, which lowers cholesterol. People actually take fiber supplements, Metamucil, Citrusel, 
to lower cholesterol about 10%. You're making epigenetic changes in how your genes are expressed when you eat this way. Ornish did some interesting stuff where he looked at uh, patients who had prostate cancer who were using his program, his basically his cardiovascular disease reversal program, and their PSAs, their prostate-specific antigens, their blood tests showing that their prost- they had prostate cancer would actually lower when they ate this way for three months. It has a lot to do with your microbiome, your, your gut bacteria, and what you're feeding them. I think we're just starting to figure out what an important impact your microbiome, your microbiota have on health outcomes, including cardiovascular disease, cancer, even dementias. Yeah. And another thing I was just thinking of is like someone listening might say, well, whole foods, plant-based, no salt, no oil, no sugar. Like that is insane. I'm not willing to do that, but I'm willing to, you know, eat oatmeal for breakfast and maybe do the occasional, you know, meatless dinner. Is that enough to move the needle? Like how far do you need to go to get the outcome you want? Yeah, that's fair. I would say that for cardiovascular disease reversal, the data really supports that you go all in. For people who are interested in, in living in reducing their lifetime risk of these bad outcomes, I think any movement you make in that plant-based direction is movement in the right direction. The data from Ornish, again, would, would back that up, that, if, that this is not an all or none thing. This is not don't let perfect be the enemy of good. I tell my patients that a lot and myself that a lot, frankly, mm-hmm. that you don't need to go all in. The patients who were most adherent in the Ornish program had the most reversal. Patients who were moderately adherent had moderate reversal and low adherence had low reversal, but everybody got something as long as they, they did something in that healthy direction. So, you know, I would encourage people who think I can't do it, right? I, I can't go whole food, plant-based, no salt, oil, sugar, I just, you know, as somebody said, is life really going to be longer? Is it just going to seem that way? It, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you don't have to do that. Make baby steps if you want. You know, how do you change? I think is being honest. You know, what is, what's your why? You have to connect to why am I doing this? And then you have to have a plan and you have to know yourself. I enjoyed personally kind of going all in to see what effect it had and then deciding after that point, you know, what, where do I want to do after this? But most people, I think you're right. Most people want to make small changes. It's called habit stacking where they do, you know, make a change, make it a habit, connect another helpful health promoting habit to that. And you just keep going. And, you know, it's that, that idea that 1% every better every day leads to a 37 fold improvement over a year. Um, it's pretty neat. Yeah, and it also seems like if you're not seeing the health outcomes you want and you're only and you're making just small changes to make a bigger change for a shorter period of time just to see if it works like what you did you said for a month I'm going to do it I'm going to go all in and see if I see a, a health outcome change and if you're not seeing the needle move then maybe going a little bit bigger for a shorter period of time could help you see if it's actually working or not. Yeah, yeah, and and be aware if you choose that path Doug Lyle L I S L E Doug Lyle does a nice talk about this and something called the pleasure trap. He and Alan Goldhammer worked on this idea and there's a book by the same name, but Doug gives it, it's on YouTube. It's a nice 15 minute or so video on the pleasure trap where he talks about this, where, you know, you have to kind of stick it out for a couple of weeks because your, your brain chemistry is such that doing the right thing is going to feel wrong for a while. Uh, And you're going to think, wow, I have a headache. I feel lethargic you know, my digestion is shifted with all this fiber I'm eating. I'm getting a lot of bloating or gas or discomfort, or, you know, I feel worse, not better. Mm -hmm. Uh, That might happen to you for the first couple of weeks because of all these major changes. You have to stick it out. I think if you're going to go all in, I think you need to go all in for a month or so. You you need to get past that first couple of weeks and let things sort of re-equilibrate and say, ah, you know, come through this dark path and then say, okay, I see the changes. I feel better. So that, that video may be worth, worth your time if you're thinking about making a significant change. Yeah. And if, if somebody says like, okay, I eat more plant-based, I can do that. But what specific foods are like a, a no-go? Like if I'm going to cut out certain foods, but I still want to eat other things, like what are the foods I just shouldn't eat? Yeah. So I think that the low hanging fruit there, no pun intended, is sugar. Sugar is, you know, just toxic to our bodies and to our health. And it's in everything. 
Uh, but I'd say that's the lowest hanging fruit. I, I, if a patient was not interested at all in this discussion, mm-hmm. then I would say, look, do one thing. Are you willing to do one thing in the dietary realm that would be most beneficial to you? Stop drinking sodas. You know, it's all about drinking sugar. Drinking your calories just is a bad idea. So avoiding sugar, number one, and then avoiding the processed foods, the white flour, the white rice, the white pasta, the white, uh, the, you know, the fried chips, salty things, the white flour and sugar. Pastries, donuts, that's the worst. Take the white flour, the sugar, add some butter to it, and then fry it. I mean, it's like the worst. I hate donuts. I, I love them, but I hate them. And so people know that I hate them. And, and someone actually gave me a couple of pairs of donut socks for Christmas. I have, I wear them. Donut, so eat this. <laughs> donut, eat this for sure. Yeah, that's the, that's the, those are the two that have to go first. Okay. And when you say like, I'm just now thinking selfishly about my own diet. Like I don't eat a lot of like white sugars, but like I do put a tablespoon maple syrup in my oatmeal. I use dates as sweeteners. Like, does that also count as sugar? It does, but it's, you know, it's all relative to anytime you're going to eat something, the que- the real question is instead of what? So if you're replacing that, you know, if you're replacing white sugar with that, there's no question that that's better. You know, if you're going to, the, the closer you can get to the whole, the plant in its whole state, the better. So sweetening with dates, for example, would be better than sweetening with maple syrup. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you're you're also adding the fiber and the phytochemicals, the plant mm-hmm. chemicals, and that are beneficial to us when you're adding the plants. In this case, the date. But you know, it, it's all a matter of degree. So I, I'm not going to lose a lot of a lot of sleep about you know adding a, a <laughs> tablespoon of maple syrup, yeah. for example, or something. But um, you know, if you can add dates and you're just as satisfied with that, that would be better. Mm-hmm. Or banana. I use banana as a sweetener for my oatmeal in the mornings. I have a question out of left field, and then I want to talk a little bit more about some of the other elements of lifestyle medicine, but atrial fibrillation is something that a lot of people don't connect with heart disease or with high blood pressure. They just think, oh, this is this like weird electrical event that's happening. Can you talk about atrial fibrillation and if and how diet can help with that? Yeah. So atrial fibrillation is by far the most common abnormal heart rhythm that we see. It's probably more common than the others combined. We tend to see it in older patients because their hearts are going to become less compliant. They're less elastic, less distensible. And so you're trying to fill up this heart with blood and it, it's sort of backing up and the atrium is at the top part of the heart and the atrium gets dilated because it's under more pressure as the heart's trying to enter this non-distensible, less compliant, less elastic bottom chamber, which is the main pumping chamber. We see it in patients who have high blood pressure because again, it's thicker heart muscle we see it in patients who have thyroid problems. We just see it all the time. About one out of, I'd say 20 patients over 65 and about one out of 10 over 80 are going to have atrial fib. That's a lot of patients. It is, it is a major risk factor for stroke. So there are data that treating patients with a lifestyle medicine approach and a dietary approach as part of that is helpful in reducing the incidence and the recurrence of atrial fibrillation through a number of mechanisms you're decreasing blood pressure, lowering blood volume by reducing sodium. You are having some effect on blood sugar and cholesterol, which will have some eventual effect on reducing the amount of plaques in the heart arteries, which makes it easier for the blood to navigate through the heart arteries, getting more blood flow and heart stronger squeezing function so the blood doesn't back up. There are a lot of mechanisms in which uh, we're just starting to scratch the surface, I think, looking at the effect of plant-based nutrition on things like atrial fibrillation and congestive heart failure, which is another, you know, a lot of this sort of goes hand in hand. I think John Day's done some good work. Uh, I don't know if you know John. John's an electrophysiologist and a lifestyle medicine advocate as well. Uh, he's a, he's a le- cardiac electrician, essentially, and an atrial fib specialist, if you will, and uh, has a lot to say about uh, plant-based nutrition and lifestyle medicine being beneficial. Okay. That's really interesting. Um, I didn't realize how prevalent that was. Yes. Very prevalent. Yeah. So lifestyle medicine, I had one other doctor on here and she's a lifestyle medicine doctor and I'm probably remembering this wrong, but she, I I thought there was like six elements of lifestyle medicine. Is that correct? 
That's exactly right. So the, the six uh, pillars, if you will, are healthful nutrition, predominantly whole plant-based foods, physical activity. And I, I put an emphasis there on functional fitness. You know, I, I, we don't like to use the word exercise. It's kind of a four-letter word for a lot of people. Maybe <laughs> not to listen to your podcast, but a lot of my patients, you know, oof, exercise. Oh, I hate exercise. I hear that all the time. What do you love doing? Do that. You know, that that's not exercise. That's just fun. So there's two. Stress management is a big one, especially now in the middle of this pandemic. It's a mental health crisis and a stress management crisis right now. A lot of companies are really struggling with their employees, having difficulties here. Sleep health, as I mentioned, because, you know, if you're not sleeping well, then you really just don't have the energy that you need to bring to, to bear on some of these other disciplines. Toxin avoidance would include things like smoking cessation, risky alcohol use, opioid use. And then that social connection piece is the sixth. And I, I would argue that it's the most important piece. I mean, it's, it's why we are here is to interact with and serve each other. So I think that's critically important. Ruckus Health, our business would add a seventh. And I don't really know where to put it. So we just made its own pillar, which is uh, purpose. Because knowing your purpose, you know, why, why am I here? At some point in your life, I think everyone is going to ask himself or herself that question. What, what am I doing here? And if you look at the Blue Zones data, you know, those, those societies around the world that had the thriving centenarians, 100-year-old people, they would suggest that knowing your purpose adds seven years to your life, hmm. seven good years to your life. So that we, we felt like that was enough evidence to, uh, to add a seventh pillar. Yeah, I think that that's a really important one because that could even shift over time. And yes. Even and I I also think about people as they retire. You know, like some people do have a lot of purpose in retirement, but other people feel totally lost. Yeah, I think that that was kind of where I was. To be honest, I mean, I'm I'm 54. I was 52 when I left my cardiology practice, and uh, you know, I wasn't ready to retire. I'm not sure I was financially ready to retire either. I had two two children wanting. I have a 20 year old and a 16 year old, so they were 18 and uh, 14 at the time, just starting college and just starting high school. But I also wasn't ready to, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to do if I'm not doing this? It was, I was scared, to be honest. I mean, I think everybody is scared when they make that decision. You're excited about, uh, maybe excited about retiring. I think we have retirement wrong in this country. You know, you work and work and work and you put your life on hold and you slog through and you save as much as you can. You don't like your job. And then you retire and you do nothing and you fish or play golf or whatever it is. And you feel like, you know, this can't be right. I did this for so many years and didn't enjoy it. And now I'm doing this and I feel like something's missing in my life. And I think it's that purpose piece. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't ready to, re to quote, retire, to leave cardiology until I had something else that I could put my energy and my passion into. And that certainly feels right to me. And I think that that will feel right to most people. You might fish and play golf and whatever else you're going to do for some short period of time, three months, six months, a year. But at some point when you start doing that, you're going to think, yeah, there's a big piece of life missing. Yeah. I also, um, I have my own health coaching practice. So I help people make changes in their life, whether it's from a, a doctor. Yeah. I'm working on my uh, board certification right oh, now, but yeah, we have something called the wheel of health and it, it's more than six pillars, but it covers a lot of these things that you talked about because health, it's not reductionist. You can't say, I just change this one thing and I'm going to feel better. It's like all these things are, are interrelated. They are. And I think there are a lot of entry points into that circle, right? Your entry point might be, I want to do whole food plant-based nutrition. My entry point may, I, may be, I want to be more active. Somebody else wants more purpose. Somebody else is having trouble sleeping. And it doesn't matter where you get involved. I think what happens is once you get on that wheel, you start seeing the benefit of whatever it is that you wanted to change. And then there's this spillover effect, right? I mean, I'm eating differently. Now I have more energy. I'm sleeping better. And now I, have, I want to go exercise or I'm exercising better and I start to see some change, you know, I feel stronger. And then you naturally think, what, what can I eat to support this new body? You know? So it, it's just, that's the fun is seeing the lights come on for patients. I'm sure you've had the same experience or will in your coaching practice where you have somebody say, there's nothing more gratifying than having someone go through a lifestyle medicine program in my experience and say, this is the best I've ever felt <laughs> that one person, will keep you going. One person that says that, and you know that you played some role in that, 
that will keep you going for a month. Yeah, for sure. Um, with the last couple of minutes we have, can you give a couple of stress management like tips for people who are struggling? Yeah, I, I can really speak more from my experience than from review of the data. There's so many different ways to reduce stress. This is again, a very personal decision, I think. I think that exercise probably is number one for me. Mm-hmm. Exercise is an incredible stress management technique. And you're also not only getting the exercise component, you're getting the stress management. So you're kind of double dipping there. And if you can double dip, you know, that's, that's great. I will share that my, my other major stress management piece is regular meditation. You know, meditating regularly for me, currently doing transcendental meditation was something I always wanted to do. I had a hard time starting it because I'm a perfectionist and I was going to do it for 20 minutes every day, you know, and it just, that lasted for about a week. And then a bad call night happened and I didn't do it. And, you know, it was just, and I failed again, right? And we've all had that experience. I can't do meditation. Mm-hmm. And now I'm doing it 20 minutes twice a day, which is just unheard of. You know, two years ago, I would have said, there's no way, but it's another one of those stick carrots. I, I've had, I've seen so much personal benefit from that, that I, I do it because I can't afford not to do it. Mm-hmm. Now that I see what's happening, I can't not do it. So I think meditation is a big one for some people. It may be simpler things, you know, listening to music, reading a good book, centering prayer, singing poetry. I'm a terrible artist, but you know, if you're an artist, anything that allows you to get in this flow where you're channeling all yourself, all of your being into something that speaks to the soul. I think that is, that is inherently stress relieving. So exercise first and then find your flow in whatever it is. And you, you might have to try a few things before you figure out, you know, this works best for me. Yeah. And the irony of all of this is that once a lot of us get stressed or busy, the foundational things that we do for our health, these pillars of lifestyle medicine, all the things on the wheel of health, those are all the things that go away. Like we start focusing on like this work thing that needs to get done or this big life event. And we stop exercising and we stop doing the thing that brings us joy. And we stop sleeping and taking care of ourselves when really it's that foundation piece that you need to, so that you can thrive in this other area. And it's, it's hard to have the discipline to actually do that. You know, I, I, I agree hundred percent. We have this conversation a lot with my friends and family and patients, and I advise a lot of them to sk- just schedule it. Schedule it like you would schedule your meeting. You know, I've got a podcast at 3.30. I've got a Zoom call at 1.30. I'm doing meditation at 12. I'm doing my walk with the dog, my three-mile loop with the dog from 9 to 10 or 9 to 9.45, whatever. Put it on the calendar make it a scheduled appointment, and then it will become habit. And then at some point, you may say, you know what? I don't need to put this on the calendar anymore. I got it. But as you're building that habit, you need, it's this cue, action, and reward. So you need the cue, which is in my case, putting it on my Google calendar, <laughs> but it could be any other cue. I mean, I've had heard, heard of people who slept in their running clothes so that when they got up, <laughs> it was, you know, not only do I have my running clothes on, if I'm not going to go running, I have to take them off. So, you know, it just makes it the healthy choice, the easy choice. That's mm-hmm. the cue is, hey, I woke up and look, I'm in my running clothes. And then the action is, of course, running and the reward is now I, I've checked it off my day. I've already I go to the work more relaxed. So schedule it, schedule it, schedule it. Well, where can people get in touch with you and your business? And if they want to make an appointment with you? So our website is Ruckus Health, www.ruckus, R-U-C-K-U-S, raising a ruckus, ruckushealth.co. There's no M on the end, but I, I would I would encourage you to check out our website and see what we're about. You can sign up uh, uh, info at ruckushealth.co. You can sign up for our newsletters, which go out weekly. We uh, would be very interested to get to know you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. This is something we could talk about for hours and hours. So I think we made a decent sized dent and enough to intrigue people on some of these other pillars of health as well. Thank you, Sonia. Thanks for doing what you're doing too. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show if you haven't done so already. And share the show with your friends. Or if you know somebody who is concerned about cardiovascular disease, make sure that you send this to them because this could potentially change their life. My work on Patreon, that is 
patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show where you can donate a couple bucks a month. And all of that goes to pay my audio producer, Roma, who has been doing this since episode one. And this is now 287 episodes. So you can imagine the cost that has been associated with keeping this podcast up and running, but I'm committed to the, the process. I'm committed to putting out a great show for you. And that is what the Patreon dollars are used to help pay. I'm so grateful that you are here. I'm so grateful that I've been able to do this podcast for almost five years. And I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you right back here next week. Bye.